Hello, and welcome to episode 46 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I am Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? Well, I started back teaching, and technology can be annoying, <laughs> but I'm glad to be employed, and I got a COVID test the other day, and I'm still negative, and I watched a lot of films and television over the last few months, especially over Christmas break. Uh, went to visit my mom, brought a big box of Blu-rays and DVDs, <laughs> and she came back to my apartment. We watched even more. So I, I, I saw like 25 movies in less than a month. So I really watched a lot of good stuff. So that made me happy. And among the stuff you watched in the last month is Mank, the new David Fincher movie, which we are going to talk about. And then as a little bonus after that, we we're going to give you our top three movies about movies, as Mank is concerned with the making of Citizen Kane. Um, I know you did a lot of homework before you watched Mank. I watched this the day it came out, and I think you waited a good few weeks because you were doing a little background research. What did that consist of, Jonathan? Right. So, uh, number one, you definitely should see the film Citizen Kane before seeing Mank if you've not seen it. And if you've yes. not seen Citizen Kane in a long time, it might be good to rewatch it. Yes. Um, I didn't rewatch. A Citizen Kane, but I did start with a 1996 documentary, uh, The Battle Over Citizen Kane, which was nominated for Best Documentary. It was technically, uh, it was a, also an episode of a TV show, American Experience, and it focuses on the conflict of making and releasing Citizen Kane, the focusing on uh, Orson Welles and Hearst. William Randolph Hearst. Hearst. Yeah, who is the basis, at least one of the basis, the main person that uh, Citizen Kane is based on. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a very informative film, and it can give you some helpful backstory. I mean, it focuses more on Wells, and Mank is more focused on Herman J. Mankiewicz, mm -hmm. where it gets the title from Mank. People call him Mank. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I watched a 1999 HBO TV movie called RKO 281, mm -hmm. which is the studio they shot in. And it's uh, based on the documentary. It says so in the credits. And it's a, a TV movie that stars Lib Schreiber as Orson Welles, James Cromwell as William Randolph Hearst. Melanie Griffith as Marion Davies, who is played by Amanda Seyfried and uh, Amanda Seyfried and Seyfried. Yeah, Seyfried, Seyfried uh, <laughs> and Mank. Uh, John Malkovich plays Herman, uh, Herman Mankiewicz in this TV movie. Mm -hmm. And Roy Scheider plays the head of RKO. And um, that's an interesting dramatization. Also more focused on Wells and the making of the like shooting of the film and mm -hmm. the controversy that went into making it. Um, then I watched a movie from 2001 that's not really at all to do with Orson Welles or Citizen Kane, but Marion Davies is one of the main characters. I watched a film from 2001 called The Cat's Meow, which is directed by Peter Bogdanovich, the director of films such as The Last Picture Show mm -hmm. and Paper Moon. And it tells the tabloid story, the rumor that uh, William Randolph Hearst uh, threw a party on a yacht in 1924 and some of the guests included his mistress marion davies and she's played by kirsten dunce and eddie izzard plays charlie chaplin mm -hmm. uh, edward herman plays hearst uh, carrie ells plays thomas entz and the basic premise is that uh hearst thought that charlie chaplin was having an affair with marion davies 
and he shoots at who he thinks is Chaplin, and he ends up shooting Thomas Ince, a Western actor and director, in the mm-hmm. head. He ends up dying a few days later, and a tabloid reporter witnesses this, Luella Parsons, and the idea is that she got a lifetime contract writing for Hearst Papers because she didn't print what really happened on the yacht. Mm-hmm. So this is all kind of a tabloid story. It's not really... Well, that goes you know, to the line of Citizen Kane. What do they believe? What I tell them to believe! <laughs> right. And and then another one that I watched was Richard Linklater's 2008 uh, film, Me and Orson Welles, which focuses on the period really right before Citizen Kane got mm-hmm. made. It's when he was a theater director for the Mercury Theater, and a number of the characters in that film are uh, in Mank. We have John Houseman is in the film, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a fictional uh, film that has real characters in it, but it's about a young man who joins the theater company as they're putting on a production of Julius Caesar in mm-hmm. 1937. And so Citizen Kane came out in 1941. Uh, mm-hmm. So why don't you, since I've given some background, some films people could possibly watch before Mank, uh, set up the basic premise and how Mank operates. Well, Mank is the latest movie directed by David Fincher, his first movie since Gone Girl in 2014. He's been making uh, some TV episodes for Netflix since then on a couple different shows. It is written by his late father, Jack Fincher. So for David, this is a bit of a, a personal project because it's, although his, his dad died almost 20 years ago, this is a uh, the only collaboration he's made with his dad, Jack Fincher, I believe, um, who was a uh, yes. writer on films and also an, <laughs> he wanted to write screenplays. And, yes, a journalist. And uh, this is mostly about Herman Mankiewicz, who was, I think, the highest paid writer in Hollywood in the 1930s. And uh, it's sort of about him becoming an outcast in Hollywood because he's making this movie Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. And it's about... William Randolph Hearst, who is the most important man in America, basically, and about how he becomes alienated from all of his previous associates and uh, makes a lot of enemies writing Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. But uh, above all, I mean, it it doesn't really claim to be an authoritative version of history. It's more about authorship and sort of legacies about who gets the credit for big successes and who sort of gets forgotten because everyone thinks of um, Orson Welles when they mention Citizen Kane, but hardly anyone thinks of Herman Mankiewicz. And it actually caused a bit of controversy when this movie was released a month ago because there's a lot of debate over who is really uh, to be given credit. I know Pauline Kael wrote an article in the 1970s where she argues that Herman Mankiewicz is basically the chief architect of what makes Citizen Kane special. Uh, a lot of people have debated the merit of that article, but this is, it's a movie about Herman Mankiewicz and him writing Citizen Kane. It does not claim to be fact, but it is also just about the filmmaking process about Hollywood in the 1930s and, uh, you know, just about like the process of creating and writing a movie. Um, like Jonathan mentioned before, it, you probably should see Citizen Kane before you see this movie or otherwise you might not really know the references or even the importance of what's happening in the movie that you're watching. Uh, when you're watching Mank, you're going to be like, so what's so important about Citizen Kane? What What's the big deal about this? But um, for me, for my reaction to it, I really, really enjoyed it. For me, this is like the funniest David Fincher movie maybe ever. A lot of his movies have a sense of humor to them, but you wouldn't exactly call them funny. 
while I think Mank is like a legitimately funny movie, um, there's some interesting things going on technically. Uh, the sound, if you start watching it, and you may be like, uh, why does this sound like it does? Uh, sound like it does. Uh, Fincher wanted to sort of recreate uh, the process of uh, recording Hollywood sound in the 1930s and the way it was played back in a theater was a bit tinny and echoey. So that's sort of the sound effects you get with this movie. I know you have a complaint that uh, they don't take the uh, sort of <laughs> timeliness of it far enough because they still shoot it in the aspect ratio most people would be familiar with, which is a widescreen, while movies released back then would be released in a box format, uh, sort of like how you think of like a TV in the early 90s. Uh, I'm just going on and on, though. Why don't you take over for me now, Jonathan? <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoy the film. I don't love the movie, but I think it's superbly made, even though one kind of quibble I have with it, the film is like many of David Fincher's films. Certainly he's a big proponent of digital mm -hmm. and he shot the film digitally and it's in black and white, but it has this t echoey. They actually recorded the sound and then played the sound in a big room and recorded that. That's oh, really? The sound to make it sound like it's in, you're watching it in a movie theater. Uh -huh. It makes it, he said that he wanted the film to feel like, and sound like they found it in a basement of Martin Scorsese's house, uh -huh. that it was you know, like some lost film. It, yeah. It's like and, the lost film that you find next to Citizen Kane is this bank. Whoa, what's bank? <laughs> or the uh, deleted scenes from Mag Magnificent Amberson possibly uh -huh. maybe one day will come <laughs> together. But yeah, I think that one kind of issue I had with the making of the film, even though largely I think it's superbly made on a technical level, it's gorgeous. The production design, the costumes, mm -hmm. the attention to period detail, all that is incredible. But I found it a little gimmicky that they had this sound quality because it didn't make sense to me that the film was shot digitally in 221 widescreen. Mm -hmm. And they even put fake cigarette burns that's where mm -hmm. back in the day when you had films projected on film that that was when you knew to switch the reels mm -hmm. you would have one and then about 10 or 15 seconds later you would know to switch the reel and they actually referenced this in fight club and mm -hmm. earlier fincher films so i think it's kind of a knowing reference not just to filmmaking but also to a past fincher film mm -hmm. but it didn't make sense to me why the sound would be like this but not but the visuals shot digitally yeah. And I mean, it looks gorgeous, black and white. Mm -hmm. I like that it's in black and white, but it didn't make sense to me to shoot it. It's like they're mixing modern technology and then really old technology. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be done really well. But I, I, I like example, for example, the lighthouse mm -hmm. that they like completely committed. They shot it, in, uh, you know, whites and they, they shot it in full screen. And they shot it on film mm -hmm. and they used really old cameras to do that. So, but that's kind of a minor quibble because mm -hmm. I think the film, one thing you said, it, it's not like barrel over laughing funny, but it's a very witty, clever. Well, it sort of movie. tries to recreate the uh, rat-a-tat-tat dialogue of movies from the 1930s, which, I mean, they portray as characters a lot of the people who wrote those movies like Charlie Lederer and a few other characters who were, I mean, Mank himself was famous for writing these sort of like whip-smart uh, urbane comedies, and it sort of tries to recreate that, you know, a mile a minute talking uh, really, really fast, getting in jokes all the time. Like, there are a couple scenes, like, there's one where they're pitching a movie to uh, 
um what's the joseph von sternberg yes and they're just like making it up as they go along and like that's a really really funny scene um but yeah as like you said it's not like the whole movie is a barrel of laughs because it is also about like mank is an alcoholic and he doesn't exactly treat his wife as well as he could so i mean it does go to dark places it's not like it's a (laughs) entirely like it's not like a movie i'll mention later uh that is just like a barrel of laughs well, I, I do think that one thing that sets it apart from some of Fincher's films is that Fincher can be a pretty, I would say, almost nihilistic filmmaker at mm-hmm. times, a kind of dark, you know, he has this perfectly shot, you know, a technical marvel of a film wherein he kind of can torture his characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of something like Fight Club or Panic Room where he mm-hmm. kind of has a kind of um, you could almost say if in a negative way some people could say a mean spiritedness to his films but i think mank is one of his more genuinely moving film where he Mm -hmm. has real affection for the characters Mm -hmm. um you know a movie like the social network there is kind of an an emotion to it but like you really hate mark zuckerberg in that movie Mm -hmm. but there's also a sort of formalized detachment with just the way sort of he has muted colors in a lot of his movies they don't necessarily pop like uh you know, like some other filmmakers do. There's definitely a detachment to a lot of his that I think, well, I mean, like his treatment of Marion Davies, a character you mentioned who was like the, uh, uh, I, I was about to He's say something the very mean. The her. mistress of hers. So I was about to say something, something and, very mean. And it should be pointed out, it should be pointed out that one of the things that Mank regretted is that people thought the character in Citizen Kane mm-hmm. uh, Who's like a failed really showgirl and like an alcoholic and Right. Not a despicable person altogether, but certainly not someone you'd think of as like a good person. Right. And so she she was a lovely uh, person on all accounts and a really good actress that didn't quite have the career that she should have because Hearst really wanted to put her into these serious dramas and yes. period pieces like Marie Antoinette. And she would have been a great comedic actress. Yes. And the film, you know, what happens and it shows this in Mank is that you know, Hearst was the main basis for Citizen Kane, but he wasn't really saying that the what's the female character in Kane? Uh, oh, the, the, uh, Susan Alexander Davies. Yeah, that she's not really or Susan Alexander Davies. Yeah, yeah, she's not really Marion Davies because you know Mank thought that she was genuinely talented and he had a great affection for her. It just happened because the main character is based on Hearst. People just assumed, oh, he was kind of kicking Marion Davies, mm-hmm. and he and he kind of regretted that people took that away from the yes. film because he didn't really want it based on her. For the last like half hour, that's like the sort of the main crux of the movie is. Uh... Friends see this as like a stab in the back to Marion, who's treated him so well and sort of introduced him into the the Hearst set that he sort of becomes like the court jester for. And that, I mean, that's another big part of the movie is sort of like uh, Mank as a writer. He feels like he's wasting his talent and Citizen Kane is sort of like the, the fulfillment of his talent and his ambition. And before that, he was just sort of wasting it all. So, I mean, a lot of the movie is about like authorship and making something worthwhile with your talent. Um, but it's also and, a really good sort of fictionalization of the studio period and giving uh, a dramatization to some uh, historical historical Hollywood figures that I find very interesting, like Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg. And the politics, the yes, politics exactly. Are a big part of it. Yes, and just um, the way the studio gonna... system was used, uh, almost as like a propaganda machine. The way it was, uh, people realized the potential of the moving picture to alter uh, the public's mind. Right. I think that going back to what you're saying about authorship, um, it's really interesting that 
Mank, you know, there, there's the um, you, you were saying about, um, you know, there's this controversy about who really wrote the screenplay. But, you know, he, he obviously was a big contributor to it. But the idea, you know, Orson Welles came and he, you know, he obviously directed it and he starred in it and mm-hmm. he put a lot into the film. But it's it's uh, the thing that's interesting is that it's considered this masterpiece of a script. But a lot of these great writers and by writers, I mean, like novelists or mm-hmm. theater critics, they came to Hollywood in the early. You know, oh, yeah. Sound came in. Faulkner, they, Scott like, Fitzgerald, yeah. people like that. And, you know. And in an odd way, a film that might be an interesting double feature with this would be Barton Fink. I mm-hmm. kind of thought of that movie some while watching this. Were they sort of the because... fictionalized William Faulkner character? Right. And there's this idea that, you know, they w- you had these authors writing brilliant novels and they were writing theater and they would, to make money, they mm-hmm. would lower themselves to make these films. I think there's a running joke in Barton Fink that he's like, you're going to make a fighting picture, a boxing picture. A Wallace Beery and- boxing picture. <laughs> right. And so the, you know, because people, you know, film had been around when Citizen came came out for over, you know, like 45 years. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, still, there was the idea that film was kind of this low rent, you know, it was connected to like the amusement park and carnival mm-hmm. barkers. And it was like the low, you know, it wasn't fine theater or well, also back then. Yeah. I think a lot of people went to the theater, not for a specific movie. They just went to the theater to be entertained for three hours or whatever, because they'd show a newsreel. They'd show an animated movie. Then they'd show a movie. So it almost didn't matter what was playing. Right. And also what the film shows uh, really uh, well, is that the studio system, how much of a factory it was. You had yes. the screenwriters, you had the production designers, you had the actors, and they were shuffled around like this actor will be in this director's film and this screenwriter, and you'd have these teams of writers on movies. And it shows you it, well, what's really amazing is making films that way sounds like it wouldn't work, but there are hundreds of incredible Mm -hmm. films that came out in the golden age of Hollywood. And I I guess, you know, the studios were just really masterful at creating, you know, they, they had all the, I mean, one thing it was because there were so many great artists in front of and behind (laughs) the screen. So that, that's certainly a part of it, but it seems that it would not work. There would have, it would have been unartistic and it would have been really, uh, it would have killed, you know, the artistic merit of a lot of films, but there's so many good films that came out. And I think the film does an interesting job of dramatizing the conflicts of like what, how a film got made back then and the politics that went into yes. it. So this is before, I mean, like the auteur theory really took off in like the fifties and sixties where people started thinking of the director as the author of a movie. So this is like a good deal before that where, I mean, would uh, that's sort of the you question. You could argue with, Orson Welles was like the first one that besides yeah. maybe Charles Chaplin that people would know, oh, this film is yes. by this theater and director. And where Orson he was Welles. a selling point for the movie because people had heard of them through his theater work. And the big thing for him was the War of the Worlds radio broadcast, I think, got way more traction than anything he'd ever done in the theater did. So, so he was, yeah, like the first sort of attractive filmmaker, like, oh, this guy, the filmmaker. Um, before that it was really just like <laughs> the plot was or the tagline or the, even the studio like people liked MGM movies because there were a lot of really big actors in it and MGM is the studio that's sort of the most focused on in this movie especially uh, Louis B. Mayer who's one of the founders of that and then Irving Thalberg who was like the boy wonder who's like the big producer for them and I don't know what do you think of I, the Upton I, Sinclair I, part of this 
Well, I was going to say that it's not really accurate to say so much that this is a film about the making of Citizen Kane because mm -hmm. a large part of the film uh, takes place in flashbacks yes. and talks about you know the 30s. And really, you don't see any of the shooting of Citizen Kane. No, and you, you hardly even see Orson Welles. He's only in about two scenes. Yeah. Yeah, Orson Welles, who's played by Thomas Burke, mm -hmm. Tom Burke, right? Mm -hmm. uh, who was in one of my favorite movies uh, a few years ago, The Souvenir, mm -hmm. which is a superb film. He's the male lead in that, Tom Burke. Um, and it's almost even when he's in the film, there's scenes where he's kind of like, <laughs> Mank is drunk and he sees him kind of hazy yeah. in the background. <laughs> it's not really clear. He's just like a, a, a figure, a dark figure that emerges on the wall. Right. And I do think that uh, it's interesting that you know, it shows you how, even though, the, you know, it's 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 almost in a weird way like a prequel to Citizen Kane where, like, it explains all the backstory uh -huh. <laughs> of what came up before to make Citizen Kane. Uh -huh. You know, the story of Hearst and Mank writing the screen. And it's also this interesting idea of how the there's real life. There are there's historical figures. There's people that and then if someone makes a work of art but they are connected to those characters, how that influence, how they influence each other, mm -hmm. how him being friends and knowing Marion Davies and, and yeah. And you're talking about Upton Sinclair. I mean, I was hearing a review where someone was saying that um, I'm not sure how much of that is really true. Yeah. I mean, I haven't done research and how much that was. Uh, it's sort know, of MGM uses these fake movies to make sure Upton Sinclair doesn't win the election. He's a progressive candidate and they, they sort of keep the conservatives in power through the power of the motion pictures. Right. Um, I think most people might be aware of that name if they know it. Uh, for, for example, he the wrote jungle, the novel yeah. Oil. Mm -hmm. Well, he wrote a uh, novel Oil, which was made into the film There Will Be Blood by mm -hmm. Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, we want to talk about the performances, too, because I think one of the strongest aspects of the film, well, the acting in general, but yes. especially Gary Oldman and uh, Amanda Seyfried, they're really yes. going to I mean, almost lock to be nominated for oscars and it seems quite likely that mary uh, that uh, amanda seyfried could win best supporting actress yes. i wouldn't be shocked well she i mean she just has like the look of like a 30s starlet in a way it was like it's perfect casting because i mean with like the big eyes and the blonde hair like she's absolutely perfect and then gary oldman seems like he's sort of on a different like tenor than everybody else in the movie everyone else seems to be trying to fit the period and like their manner of speech a little bit more while gary oldman is just sort of letting it ride did you get that feel well, I think that it, it's interesting. One of your favorite movies I know um, is Tinker Tailor Soldier mm -hmm. Spy. And it's kind of interesting comparing the performances because in both of the films, you know, he's done films like, you know, True Romance and Dracula where he's like really flamboyant and over the top. There's like Leon the Professional. There's, right. Yeah. He's done. He's one of he's really one of those chameleon actors where mm -hmm. you forget sometimes like how many movies he was in. And he's, you know, plays Sid vicious and Sid Nancy he's done such an eclectic array of roles mm -hmm. but in uh, this and Tinker Taylor it's two of his most subtle quiet normal mm -hmm. characters like they're he's just playing these quiet older men mm -hmm. and I think that uh you know Mank is really good with words mm -hmm. not obviously I mean as a writer but just the way he speaks and I think that the film really captures 
this kind of melancholy. There's a real melancholy to the film of mm-hmm. him being this brilliant writer who's yeah. kind of, you know, it, he he's making it's almost like a western in a way where he's he has his last go and he yeah. makes his fight he makes his masterpiece but he's like the shootest like he knows it's the end. <laughs> he knows it's the end of his career and he's not going to and it, and it's interesting uh Citizen Kane which is often considered one of the very best if not the best American film of all time. It only won one Oscar, mm-hmm. which was best uh, screenplay for Wells and Mank. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's interesting that uh, I think part of it was the politics that yes. you know it did not win best picture or director or actor for Wells. Yeah, because apparently William Randolph Hearst was like, "This movie's no one should see this movie. This movie is a lie. This movie is like vicious, disgusting, trying to like say bad things about me." So I mean, I. I in the ways I do think that watching this enriches the experience of Citizen Kane, because I think for a lot of people, I mean, obviously the historical context is sort of what makes Citizen Kane special in the fact that it's like about a real person. And when it came out in 1941, it was very contemporary and like about figures everyone would have recognized. While obviously as you get further from 1941, it becomes more difficult for audiences to recognize these things that would have come like obviously to audiences in 1941. So watching Mank gives you like a lot of background that is kind of necessary for getting the full Citizen Kane experience. So I, I actually think it, it really enriches Citizen Kane. Obviously if you like wanted to do research, you could have found all these things out, but just seeing it dramatized the way it is in Mank, like I think I, I feel like these, this movie will be connected to Citizen Kane for like a while. Like it's, it's hard to think of one without the other. Well, at least for me, like uh, make a very interesting double feature. I haven't done that yet, but uh, looking forward to doing that someday. Well, you were talking about how it would, it's really important to watch Citizen Kane for the references. And we should make note that we don't just mean references in the sense of you would get this reference to the production yes. of the film, but there's also like who these people. Oh well, yeah, exactly. Like yeah, there's the I'm, famous yeah, one with the snow globe the- that they recreate with an empty alcohol bottle. And this one, uh, there's a lot of references to it, yeah. Yeah, there are scenes where there is um, a group of people, and like you're not really seeing their face, and they're like their shadows. And mm-hmm. there, there's all the you, you say. I would say one more little quibble about the maybe it's my television. Did you think the film was like really dark in some scenes? It looked like uh, unnaturally like not old school how black and white would look, but it looked like really dark. And I heard in the production, uh-huh. there were times because they shot it digitally, there were ways that they could shoot a night scene, like uh, it in pitch a, a night scene in full sunlight. Uh-huh. And they could just change the, the, the knobs on the machines these days or whatever uh-huh. they could make it look. But I, I thought there were scenes where it w- like it, it didn't have that kind of lush, like almost radiate, you know how like some black and white movies, especially when you see a close up of a uh-huh. face, it's like there's almost this shine to it. In this movie, it almost seemed like harsh and like really black and really dark. Or no, I think TV? that's definitely true. I think that is true. I mean, the the, right. the thing you know, the thing you notice right off the back is the sound. Um, so at least for the first time I watched it, that was like the thing <laughs> that was like occupying the foremost space in my mind was just <laughs> how it sounded because it was so different than any movie I'd seen. That, Maybe ever because yeah. it just tries to like recreate watching a movie in the 1930s, um, which you right. know you can argue a, how successful they were at that, but it was definitely different. 
Right. I have a trivia question that I think I'm correct in the answer. I know there's one. I don't think that Gary Oldman will win Best Actor. I think he'll almost certainly be nominated. Mm -hmm. But who is the only person that I can think of to win an Oscar for playing a real Oscar winner? Oh, I don't know. I'll give you a hint. It's a woman, and it's also uh, in this kind of time period, and it's one of your favorite Scorsese films. Oh, The Aviator, Kate Blanchett. Yeah, playing oh, Catherine okay. Hepburn. Can, yeah. can you think of any other person that's ever won an Oscar for playing a real Oscar winner? Uh, I can't. I, I know there's people who have been nominated. Um, right. Yeah, plenty. Uh, but no, I can't but, think uh, of one. At least right, off the random of my head. trivia. <laughs> that could yeah, be but, a good uh, trivia. going along with that, if, if you're someone who, what we're saying in the last minute about like, oh, Oscars and who's playing, it's like this might not be the film for you. Like, if you have not already seen Citizen Kane, mm -hmm. you probably won't want to watch this movie because it's I, what I've been telling people. This movie's really inside baseball, yes. but that's my game. And I love yes. that. I love this. Yes, uh, people like us who like who know who Irving Thalberg is and like didn't don't need to right. like read all about it. it. And you just sort of like recognize it. And people like Charlie Lederer who wrote his Girl Friday. Like if you like old movies, like this is right up your alley. But most people, I mean our age or even people alive today, aren't watching movies from yeah. the nineteen thirties and forties regularly. So it probably will not and appeal to as wide of a base as as most Fincher movies do, because most Fincher movies, like at least recently, like Gone Girl, Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo have been like big, big movies that have appealed to a lot of people. But this is definitely not one of those. Right. This he said that you know, I forgot the exact number. He said there may be a dozen people in the world that will want to see this movie, but he wanted to make it. And, you know, Netflix may be destroying brick and mortar cinema, helping destroy. But I mean, thank God for Netflix. Like, who else would make this movie? It's funny. Nobody. You know, it's, it's like the really same thing with the Irishman. Yeah. yeah. But what's really ironic is that no big old Hollywood studio, MGM, Warner Brothers, Paramount, would make this movie about old Hollywood. Uh -huh. They had to go to a brand spanking new streaming service to make a movie about the golden <laughs> to age mythologize the studio really... system. <laughs> yeah. That Netflix well, what is would destroying. Be... Yeah. Well, I don't think it's going to win best picture, but it would be really interesting if the first streaming film, at least first Netflix film, won best picture about old Hollywood. So much about right. Hollywood and studios and yeah. It would be. Well, there's a there's a long history of, especially in recent years, of films winning major Oscars where it's Hollywood and actors patting themselves on the back. Argo, mm -hmm. Birdman, The Artist, La La Land. You know, the, uh -huh. Hollywood likes to. Birdman isn't exactly himself. patting Hollywood on the back, but it is definitely about Hollywood. Well, but it's it, it's a film that takes actors very seriously, and yes. like it's you yes. know. No, but, that's definitely um, true. Yeah, yeah. So um, we were saying that I have seen all of Fincher's films. You have seen all of his kind of he uh, directed his first film as Alien 3, which he didn't get final cut mm -hmm. at a horrible time making it. Um, I my, I think his masterpiece or at least his best film, one of his pieces is Zodiac. Mm -hmm. That's my number one of his. Uh, you said your favorite is The Social Network. Yeah, that probably would be two for me. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I, I didn't love, love Mank, but I really appreciated it. I think that, I mean, I've heard some critics criticize it. I do think that it is um, one of his more, uh, 
I mean, I, I'm not at all saying it's nihilistic, but it is one of his more emotional, moving films. But I do think the fact that it's so well made in like the black and white and all the period detail, mm-hmm. there is a little bit of a you're looking at it from a distance detachment, like you, you like you don't entirely like warm up to the characters. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a did you get a sense of that a little well, bit? Well, also, it's hard. I, I really... you, you're always thinking about them having existed almost 100 years ago. So that automatically adds a level of detachment to it. Um, right. And, and, the, then... and you were saying, you know, the, 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 well, the you know, swell guys. Da, 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 exactly. That, that yeah. dialogue. It's it, not that not that it's gimmicky or that it's forced or it's insincere, but there is there is a lot of artifice to the film and a lot of it's impeccably done yes but there is still a little bit of you know you're you're, you're watching it from a distance well, that's that's uh, why i think the sort of like uh some of the criticisms have been about uh they were saying you know fincher claims herman mankiewicz made citizen kane which i think that could not be farther from the truth because i think it's i think he makes it very clear that this is like a studio type movie like it's like kind of a fantasy in the way that movies from the 1930s and 40s were very much like not not formulaic but like they're like our hollywood movies and this is very much a dramatization it does not claim to be fact at all so when people have a hard time separating that i don't know i'm, I'm just like <laughs> come on it's, this is obviously isn't like making any real claims about history or anything like that so i don't know it's just one of those criticisms right, yeah. that annoys me yeah, I always say, don't let the truth get in the way of a good film. Mm-hmm. That's well, my line. Mank, well, I think we'd recommend it to anybody who has a, a master's degree in cinema studies. Maybe not uh, <laughs> people who don't watch a lot of old movies. But I think if you see Mank, you will not be completely disappointed because there is some really good acting in it and some really gorgeous black and white photography. So even if you don't pick up on all the references to Citizen Kane, there are still some stuff to enjoy in it, but obviously you will not be getting the full experience if you aren't familiar with all of these uh, historical figures and the background of Citizen Kane and all that sort of stuff. But ultimately, I think it's a really, really good movie. Like I mentioned to Jonathan, I've seen it three times already. I think it's extremely watchable. Uh, Probably most people wouldn't find it as watchable as I do, but uh, I mean, this is one of my favorite movies of, of 2020. I'll say that much. Did uh do you know if Citizen Kane is streaming on Netflix also now? No, it's it's not? on HBO Max. Uh I was looking that up cuz I was like thinking of streaming it. It came on TCM the other day and I recorded it. I don't have Is it they I guess there is a Blu-ray of Citizen Kane. I just don't Oh yeah. It. I just don't have it. Yeah. I have the Blu-ray which has a DVD with that documentary The Battle Over Citizen Kane oh. uh, as on its own disc. So if you get the Blu-ray uh, you can watch. Yeah, it's interesting. This year movie. now, the film uh, came out the end of 2020, but now since it's 2021, Citizen Kane is 80 years old this year. Wow, anniversary! Look at yeah. that. Right. So, what do we? We're going to talk about now. I'm not. The, I'm not saying these are definitively my three top favorite films about movies. I just pick three movies I really like. Mm-hmm. One of them is certainly my number one. But we're going to just talk about some films, and the only criteria is that it's about the making of a film, about Hollywood, something about movie making. It yes. can be a real film, it can be a fake film, just films about film in mm-hmm. some way. And about the film industry. Well, I, do you want to get right. started or do you want me to just get started? 
Why don't you pick one? All right, I'm I'm gonna go. Well, I'm just gonna do no particular order here. We don't need to rank stuff. Every movie is has value, so I'm just gonna go random here. The first one I'm gonna mention is Day for Night from 1973, directed by Francois Truffaut, starring Jacqueline Bisset and Jean Pierre Leo, and also actually stars Francois Truffaut himself as the director of the film within a film. Uh, the title Day for Night is a uh, actually, the original French title is La Nuit Americaine, which is American Night, because in old Hollywood, a little trade secret here, the way they used to shoot nighttime was not during the night, because they didn't have the technology to shoot at nighttime. They would shoot uh, during the day and add a filter to make it look like nighttime. So Day for Night is just sort of like a play on uh, that filmmaking technique from old Hollywood. And it's it's probably the most fun movie Truffaut ever made. It's certainly like the least, uh, well, it's definitely like the most optimistic <laughs> and like for you watch like 400 blows or something like that. And you're like, Oh man, this could get pretty grim. Day for night does not really have anything like that. in it it's, it's, I mean, it's basically just about a, a film production in France in the 1970s. It seems like the movie they're making is not particularly good or particularly important, but they're making it because they are filmmakers and actors and this is what they do, and it just sort of gives you, uh, like, a background and all what all the different characters are doing during the production, and it's a very, very funny movie, and probably a good introduction uh, if anyone wants to get into Francois Truffaut, because uh, you think of Truffaut and French New Wave, and it seems all very inapproachable and very heady and uh, uh, very, like, brainy, but Day for Night is just a very, very watchable movie. It's got Jacqueline Bissett, so some of it's in English, <laughs> which is a real plus for people getting into French movies, but I know this is one you haven't seen, but I, I very, very much recommend this, especially if you haven't seen any Truffaut movies before. I know you have, but it's a really, really good introduction to uh, to foreign film, and because it's, like, about movies, it uh, there are a lot of, sort of, things that you will be able to identify that uh, sort of bridged the cultural gap between us in France. And it actually won uh, the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film in 1974. So how about that? Day for night, Francois yeah. Truffaut. One of my favorite quotes about films is from Truffaut. He once said that film lovers are sick people. And I often tell people that I'm a sick person for movies. Because <laughs> I love uh, movies. <laughs> right. Well, I'll go along, kind of connect it uh, to your, I, my favorite film about filmmaking for sure. It's in my top 10 favorite films of all time. It's my favorite foreign language film of all time okay. is Federico Fellini's eight and a half. Another great foreign language film about the making of a film mm -hmm. came out in 1963. And this movie is almost 60 years old now. And I just think it, it it's certainly of its time in some ways, mm -hmm. the, you know, the cost, you know, the way people dress and, but it is so fresh and alive. And mm -hmm. I think it, if I were going to give Oscar awards and qualify every movie that's ever been made, I honestly might give best director to Fellini for eight and a half. He would certainly be one of the top five nominees. It is just a masterpiece. And it is yeah. often when people are uh, directors, filmmakers are polled and asked like, what are the best films of all time? Eight mm -hmm. and a half is, is one, especially film directors really love. And the film stars uh, his actor that he often cast, Mastro, Mastro how do you Marcello say Marcello Mastroianni. 
<laughs> right. And he plays uh, a basically he plays Fellini in the film. He's, mm-hmm. and, you know, he doesn't have the same name, but it's obvious that he's uh, uh, and it has you know, all taking the, the classic Fellini surrealism. <laughs> Right. And early in the movie, well, throughout the whole movie, he's constantly asked questions. You know, the screenwriter, producers, actors, his wife, his mistresses. He's constantly bombarded by questions. People want answers mm-hmm. about the making of the film, what his films mean. And the first question that they ask him in the movie is how old he is. And uh, he says 43. And that's how old Fellini was when the film came out. Oh, wow. So that's a clued as to and yeah last year would have been his 100th birthday he was born in 1920 and for christmas slash my birthday born on christmas day i got fellini uh the essential fellini blu-ray box set from the criterion collection and so they have restored a lot of his movies uh done like restoration so eight and a half if you've never seen it it's just a really important uh international mm-hmm. film it's also a big film in his career because he had done these more realistic, kind of almost in some ways neo-realistic uh-huh. films like Knights of Cabrera and La Strada. And then he did La Dolce Vita, and that was kind of exuberant. Yes, showed the excess just overflowing of, uh, of exuberant filmmaking. Yeah. Right. And then Eight and a Half was like really the first one that it, it had some of La Dolce Vita, but then it added the fantasy elements mm-hmm. and the kind of – he became more kind of operatic and yes. less grounded in reality. And Eight and a Half is just, I think, a stunning film. And I, I'm just in awe of it every time I see it. It's There's so many scenes that are just, it's like cinema at its most, <laughs> it just, I love it so much. Well, and it's, for a lot of people, it's like an introduction to foreign cinema. At least it was for me. Uh, it was easily one of the first 10 foreign movies that I ever watched, which is a bit weird considering eight and a half. It's about the previous movies Fellini made. So having that be the first Fellini movie you see is a bit strange. I'm sure that's not how he intended it to be watched, but that's at least how I experienced it. Right. We can explain the uh, reason it's titled eight and a half is Mm -hmm. that he had directed a certain number of feature films and he had directed some segments Mm -hmm. of other films, anthology films. And if you added it up, this was his eighth and a half film. Mm-hmm. So it's like his maturation as a filmmaker. And it, it, the style that you mentioned is a little bit more uh, opulent, less realistic, sort of becomes his trademark uh, from that point on. Um, it's not in color. It's in black and white, which is a little crazy that it's as <laughs> beautiful and as opulent as it is, and it's in black and white. It was, And it was his last black and white film because mm-hmm. Juliet's of the Spirit, uh, Spirits was next. Mm-hmm. I think all of his films after that were in color. I know I, I I all the ones I've seen I'm record satiricon, uh yeah right so my next one uh to go for a movie that was not well received at all when it came out and I know is not one of your favorite Coen Brothers movies but for me is out of the last four years maybe the movie I've seen the most it is Hail Caesar from 2016 directed by Joel and Ethan Coen starring an absolutely all-star cast, Josh Brolin, George Clooney, Ray Fiennes, Jonah Hill, Scarlett Johansson, Francis McDormand, Tilda Swinton, playing two characters, and Channing Tatum. <laughs> and um, although you think of the Coen brothers, great American filmmakers, showing the sort of the seedy underbelly of American society, Hail Caesar is probably the like least... Um, I, I keep trying to find out. It's not sinister. It's not... It's like negative, sort of moody. What is the word I'm looking for here? 
<laughs> it's the least tense of their movies, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yes, it's like one you sort of watch and turn your brain off. And it's very much, it's the sort of, uh, the base story, it's about Hail Caesar. is a biblical epic of the 1950s when the 1950s were very much the era for biblical epics. you got like Quo Vadis and the fall of the Roman Empire. And, uh, the Robe. <laughs> the Robe, Ben-Hur. So this is just sort of a spoof of those kind of movies and also a bit of a wind-up of the Hollywood system in the 1950s. Like, you get Scarlett Johansson playing the um, synchronized swimming uh, actress. What was the name of the real actress, do you remember? Esther Williams. Esther right? Williams, that's it. And just a lot of sort of, like... Uh, can I get? Can I? Can I jump in real quick yes. and tell a really funny story? <laughs> David Lynch said that one time he was in a restaurant and he saw Esther Williams and he went up to her and said that he was in love with her when he was in the third grade, and she said that she really appreciated that. And then <laughs> Esther Williams said to her, said to Lynch, "Why did you make Isabella Rosalini show her beaver in blue velvet?" <laughs> It's like, well, you know, it fit with the story. <laughs> and the, the interviewer said, that's my favorite fan story ever. <laughs> but continue. Oh, well, I mean, uh, yeah, Josh Brolin plays like a studio fixer and he's just fixing all these problems for all the various stars. And there's a really funny like Ray Donovan. Yes, exactly. And there's like a really funny writers uh, who are like part of the red movement who are trying to make a. <laughs> Channing Tatum's Gene Kelly, Gene Kelly type character become uh, like a Soviet man in Russia. It's just a lot going on, and it's just a lot of really good actors having fun. And it's, I mean, it's probably one of the more fun of the Coen Brothers movies. It's definitely not their best movie. It's probably not even in their top ten. But it is one of the movies about movies that I enjoy more than almost any other. And like I mentioned, I've probably seen this movie more than any movie that's come out in the last four years because it's for some reason it was always on TV in 2017. Um, so I watched it like eight times that year. And I've got it on Blu-ray and all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, this is a... I, I think this is a good movie for people who want to know a little bit about the history of Hollywood and sort of the studio system. It's not at all fact-based, but it gives you a good sense of how studios operated with the, you know, actors hired to the studio. And just it, the way movies operated back then is very, very different to how they operate now. So I just like seeing that sort of world depicted on film. And Harold Caesar is sort of like the funniest, most vibrant version of that it's sort of like a funny vibrant version of mank uh about 10 years later uh so this was a movie i saw when it came out and i've really enjoyed ever since and probably will be forgotten uh and when people look back on the coen brothers career but it will not be forgotten by me yeah the film came out in 2016 and uh the coen brothers are so good that their lesser films are better than a lot of people's best <laughs> movies exactly it yeah. has this it has a 72 on Metacritic. And I mean, I would say the Coen brothers have made, I think, 18 feature films. And this is maybe like their 15th best film. Mm -hmm. But still. Uh, I mean, but I, even I, just I look at its one... box office, it uh, returned three times its, its budget. And it's a comedy about 1950s studio Hollywood that just shows you how talented yeah. filmmakers and what weight they carry as filmmakers, which. Uh, not if I mean only like Christopher Nolan who else has sort of the buzz the Coen brothers do is just like filmmakers making a movie it's a must-see it might just be Nolan right. who's above him above them well the 
Well, the idea, though, is that they make movies for a significantly less amount of money than Nolan. Yes, exactly. You know, and yes. they get every actor in the world wants to work with them. Yes. So that's how they can, you know, if you have a movie starring George Clooney and Scarlett Johansson. And, <laughs> and, you know, and they took Kate studio and, minimum to, to be in it. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, I think one of the uh, best people in the film i'm going to mispronounce his name alden I, I oh alden Ehrenreich. yes yes as the yeah. singing cowboy he is so funny that is definitely my favorite part of it and an actor who really hasn't done much since then he was cast as han solo in the disastrous solo movie but i had very very high hopes for him after hail caesar i know who's yeah he was brave new world he, the cbs all access show last which, year no one's ever seen <laughs> no <laughs> Yeah, I um, yeah, I, I, it's not my favorite Coen Brothers film, but all their films are certainly worth seeing, and uh, it, it, it's it's beautifully made. I, I really enjoyed the homoerotic Channing Tatum, Channing Tatum dance <laughs> ain't, number. Ain't got no dames. <laughs> That's one of the yeah. standout set pieces, definitely. Right. Well, I will go to a much more contemporary film that I saw for the first time last year. Uh, it's a documentary called Camera Person that came out in 2016. It's by uh, Kirsten Johnson. The reason I watched the film uh, last year, for one reason, is because she had her uh, newest film called Dick Johnson is Dead, which is also a wonderful film and is also kind of about the making of a film. That movie is where she has her father who is deteriorating uh, in health because he has Alzheimer's, and she kills off her father and filmed stage scenes with his total cooperation he gets you know uh air conditioning unit falling on his head or he has a board whack him in the face and blood spurts out of his neck or he falls down a flight of stairs and it's very quirky but it's really beautifully made but i'm going to talk about her previous film as a director camera person and she for decades has been a cinematographer on documentaries she shot citizen four the Edward Snowden documentary. She's worked with Michael Moore. She's done films all around the globe. And she made this film that's almost like a collage film or a mem filmed memoir where she takes outtakes from films that she worked on or behind the scenes footage. And she makes this film that doesn't have a narrative really in the sen traditional sense, but she makes this film where she takes moments of her life and it's really a beautiful film that makes that made me question uh, what does it mean to be a film? What how footage can be incorporated and taken and have an original context, and then you put it and edit it together with other footage, and it brings on a whole new meaning. And it was also the idea of having someone work on a film, and what does it mean? to your life and being a witness or being behind the scenes and where you place the camera. I just, there are all these thoughts about filmmaking and life and how the two intertwine with each other and how much of her life is, was, you know, being captured with a camera. And it's just a really beautiful movie. Uh, it's in the Criterion Collection. It's one of the most recent films in the Criterion Collection. It's just a really incredible film. I just, it really is one of the best things I saw for the first time last year. So uh, I highly recommend camera person. Mm -hmm. It would not be a movie brats countdown without you picking a documentary. So <laughs> I'm glad you got the obligatory documentary. in. Uh, my final pick is uh, probably my favorite movie about movies. I know it's uh, very well regarded by you. You're a big fan of the filmmaker. It is the player from Robert Altman from 1992 
uh, starring Tim Robbins, Greta Scotchy, who has really disappeared from movies altogether, uh, Fred Ward, Whoopi Goldberg, Peter Gallagher, <clears throat> and uh, a whole and host of cameos. <laughs> exactly. A ton of cameos from it's, every actor you've ever seen. And sometimes it's just like, oh, there's Jack Lemmon standing in the background in a party scene. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think it has to be the film with the most Oscar winners in it ever. Oh, it has to be. It it has yeah. to be. Like, there's a party scene where it's like literally every person you've ever seen in a movie is there. Um, it's, it, it's definitely a black comedy. It's sort of a satire about... Uh, the Hollywood studio business. It's uh, Tim Robbins plays a big time studio executive who kills an aspiring screenwriter. He believes is sending him death threats and ends up getting together with that guy's girlfriend. And he ends up like making the movie that the guy wrote basically. Right. From what I remember. Right. The joke is that these uh, they want to make this really serious movie that they're not going to be you know change the ending they're not going to you know they want to be yeah it's like a death throw a death row movie where the guy dies and it's very very sad and then <laughs> hollywood yeah, and gets then, in on the business and you see what happens from there and bruce willis comes swinging in at the last minute and <laughs> to saves julia roberts uh-huh. traffic was a bitch <laughs> yeah and interestingly in that scene <clears throat> i think in the background is susan sarandon and they went on a few years later to make dead man oh walking yeah dead together. man walking yeah um, yeah, but yeah, it's, I mean, Robert Altman, one of the great filmmakers from the 1970s, he did Nashville and then sort of had a reemergence in the 1990s with this and then shortcuts. Um, and then his, last yeah, movie. it was considered like a kind of a comeback because he had this amazing string of films in the seventies. Mm-hmm. He had mash in 1970 and then like you were saying, he had McCabe and Mrs. Miller mm-hmm. and Nashville, the long goodbye. And then he kept making many films in the 80s but they were often kind of underseen mm-hmm. uh, and a number of them he did stuff on television he did uh play adaptations mm-hmm. um but then he came back in the 90s and he made this film that was you know kind of biting the hand that fed him mm-hmm. and it was one of his most critically acclaimed movies yeah it and was like you a said, big big really... hit eber gave it four out of four stars it got nominated for best director uh best adapted screenplay best editing so this very much put him back on the map but I think this, uh, I don't know, at one time this was a very, I wouldn't say famous movie, but a really notable movie where if you mentioned movies about movies in Hollywood, this would be like among the first ones mentioned. But I I don't think it's, well, part of that goes to, you know, people getting younger and people not watching as many movies, but I think it's a little more forgotten than it was, say, 15 to 20 years ago when it was really, really highly regarded. Um, But for me, easily one of the best movies about movies. Probably the best satire of Hollywood, um, maybe even the best satire of like the entertainment industry. It's up there with like sweet smell of success and stuff like that. It's just like biting black comedy that you don't really get too many like it. I mean, sweet smell of success is one that I would compare it to, but it has a really sort of unique tone and uh, approach to even like the main characters. Cause in most movies you're supposed to like <laughs> the protagonist is someone you're supposed to like and someone who you want to succeed while Tim Robbins, Griffin Mill is just like the lowest, lowest scum of Hollywood studio people you could ever find. So it's sort of like, uh, it's one of those ones where the guy does really bad stuff and he's a lot of times he almost gets caught and it sort of plays with you as an audience member. Either you, you kind of want him to get away, but then you're like, why do I want him to get away? This guy sucks. So it, it works as one of those ones where it sort of plays with audience expectations. And 
audience identification with the who is supposed to be the protagonist, but is maybe not someone who you should be identifying with. But the player, nineteen ninety two, Robert Altman, great, great movie. It's on. It's in the Criterion Collection, is it not? Yes, it is, mm-hmm. and it has a great cover with a strand of celluloid <laughs> yes. formed into a noose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what I just want to mention, uh, one of, it has, uh, along with Touch of Evil, one of the great opening long, uh, and they reference Touch shots. of Evil in the opening shot, <laughs> right? And uh, there's a great part where uh, Buck Henry plays himself, who was the screenwriter of The Graduate, and he p- pitches a sequel to The Graduate yes. <laughs> that sounds like the worst movie ever that only a awful Hollywood studio would make. They actually kind of did up make up making a sort of Gradual graduate sequel. Did you ever see that movie Rob Reiner did called Rumor Has It? I, I remember Costner, it. Jennifer Aniston. I remember that. Awful. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm going to go to a movie that came out two years later uh, that is, I think, by far Tim Burton's best film. And it, like Mank, a more recent film that's in black and white. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about uh, Ed Wood, the film starring Johnny Depp as the director who I think is unfairly considered the worst director of all time and who made the worst film ever made plan nine from (laughs) outer space. Uh, The reason I think that's unfair is because Ed Wood had such passion and love for film. And he really put everything into his films. Like he really cared about films. He just was really talentless and was (laughs) a really bad filmmaker. That's the tragedy of it. But What's really remarkable about this film is that it's very funny, but you're not laughing down at Ed Wood. It's a really affectionate film. And the idea is that, you know, they could have made this kind of mean spirited laughing at him movie, but it's they made a film about Ed Wood where it celebrates him Mm -hmm. as almost like an outsider artist. You know, he made these movies that were, you know, horribly made on a technical level and they had horrible acting. But there's 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 something to his movies he had such passion like i was saying mm-hmm. that they're they're not just you know run out of the mill bad movies there's kind of a you know you could say he i mean i would argue he, uh, edward was an auteur mm-hmm. and i do think that this is uh one of johnny depp's best performances he plays him as kind of a mix of um, you know, he, he plays it like a game show host in a way. There's this chipper attitude, and I'm just like buzzing with positivity, <laughs> right? And I think it will, and certainly we have to mention uh, Martin Landau. <laughs> so Mel Lugosi had never won an Oscar, but Martin Landau won Best Supporting Actor for playing Bell Lugosi. He was the actor who played Dracula mm-hmm. in the 1931 film, and he had uh, been addicted to drugs for years, and mm-hmm. he was really at a low point in his career, and Ed Wood came along and cast him in a few of his movies. Notably, he had a very few scenes in Planet from Outer Space and then died and Ed Wood just had a much younger, taller actor hold the cape over his face for the rest of the movie. But this movie is beautifully shot in black and white. It's very well written by Larry Karaszewski and Scott Alexander, who have also written movies such as The People vs. Larry Flint mm-hmm. and the later Tim uh, Burton film Big Eyes. He also mm-hmm. did Man on the Moon. Uh, it's just a wonderful film. It's funny, and it's but it's affectionate, and it, I think it's the Tim Burton's best film is mm-hmm. one of Johnny Depp's best performances has a really wonderful cast. It has Sarah Jessica Parker and like one of the few good films she's ever actually <laughs> been in. Uh, Bill Murray, uh, Patricia Arquette, 
Mm-hmm. And Martin Landau, as I said, won the Oscar. Vin- Vincent D'Onofrio has a cameo as Orson Welles. <laughs> yes, connecting that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I highly recommend Ed Wood, especially for people that are Tim Burton fans that mm-hmm. may not have seen this film. Uh, it's uh, certain. I mean, would you well, you've seen it, right? Yeah, this was I saw this a long time ago. This is like one of the first Tim Burton movies I ever saw. And I've seen it a few times since. Definitely my favorite Johnny Depp performance. Like this is <laughs> Johnny Depp at his like effervescent best. Uh, he's really, really incredible in it. Um, and then really, really good Martin Landau as Bella Lugosi. He did he win an Oscar for this? Yeah, he won. And it's funny, if you watch the video, it was the same year that uh, Pulp Fiction was nominated and Samuel Jackson was nominated. And when they call Martin Landau, you can see Samuel Jackson kind of going, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's Irritated. definitely like give it to the old Hollywood guy for that one. Because, I mean, Martin Landau is exceptional right. in this, but I mean, right. Jules in Pulp Fiction is like an iconic Landau. character. I met Martin Landau at a convention in New Jersey when I was living in New York. Uh, he died a few years ago. Um, but yeah, he um, he was nominated a few years before that for uh, also supporting actor for Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors, mm-hmm. which is a superb film. Yes. But and he's um, really, really great. Yeah. So the, uh, for, uh, I should, uh, go back through my three. My favorite film of all time based about movies is certainly is Eight and a Half. And I also wanted to recommend Camera Person mm-hmm. and Ed Wood. And mine are The Player, Day for Night, or La Nuit Miracle, and Hail Caesar. Uh, movies about movies. Mank is a movie about movies. This is a podcast for movies. We recommend you see more movies. We've been watching a lot ourselves over the last few months. Um, yeah, we are we are sick people, like I was saying. Would you <laughs> yes. consider yourself a sick person? Well, I, I definitely one of the people who watches too many movies. I'll say that much. <laughs> right, right. Um, I can't wait to go back to the movie theater because that's a big part of it oh, for I me. Know. I would have loved to have seen Mank in a the theater. Yes. There, I mean, there's just a lot. This was such an unusual December because you, as we're so used to December being like the month for prestige movies coming out in theaters, and for it to just be like nothing this year has just been very, very strange. So, I mean, this is Real usually quick. when we're thinking about Oscars and stuff like that, but it's just going to be a very different year. So, looking forward right, to things coming. Light, lightning round. <laughs> Name like one or two of your favorite black and white movies from the century so far. Uh. Good night and good luck. I think is really good. George Clooney is that his directorial debut about Edward Morrow and uh, the McCarthy uh, hearings? Well, not his first. That uh, he did uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Okay, but, well it was very uh, close yeah. after that. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to think of some. Uh, the artist. One for me. I liked when it the came one out. One for me is uh, Nebraska. Alexander ah, Payne's yeah. film. A really wonderful movie. Bruce Stern. Um, right, nominated for Best Actor. Oh, and, Cold uh, War. Pavel Pavlikovsky. One of my favorite movies of this. Roma for me. Roma, yeah. Roma certainly up there. Yeah. I wish that more... Don't you think more movies should be in black and white? There's some movies that just should be in black and white. Well, I, black and white photography just looks excellent. Um, Control. Is the there one a... About, okay. uh, I really like that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's, um, uh, what's a movie that you think... Not necessarily would be better, but would be really good in black and white. Like, for me... Oh, like um, a newer think, movie? Like L.A. Confidential would be cool in black and white. Oh wow, that would be really cool. Uh, yeah. Ooh, I don't well, know. well, we can uh, connect to one of your recommendations. They just announced uh, a few days ago that uh, Joel Cohen is making his first film by himself without his brother Ethan, mm-hmm. a film of Macbeth starring Denzel Washington 
and uh, Joel's wife, Frances McDormand, and it's going to be in black and white. They did a really good black and white movie, The Man Who Wasn't There. Yes. Came out in the early uh, 2001, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's uh, – I always say that, you know – I what I've always questioned if they made like a Transformers or Harry Potter or Marvel movie in black and white – do you think it would like drastically affect the box office or do you think if people are fans of those series, they would just go see the new film or would people go, oh, I'm not going to see black and white. I movie. bet you at least half the audience would be put off by it being in black and white. They just be like, no, no, I think I especially think if it's like Transformers. Yes. I, Mad Max Fury Road had a black and white cut and the Wolverine, the James Mangold. Was it called the Wolverine? It was yeah. Logan. Oh, that's it. Logan. Uh, they had a black yeah. and white Lo- cut. Yeah, I, yeah, and but Parasite they didn't release had, that in theaters. Uh, that yeah. would have been cool if they had released that in theaters in black and white. Paras- Parasite had a black and white version. Yes, that's true. Yep. Yeah, and uh, interesting, another South Korean film, uh, the the Vengeance trilogy that Chan Wook Park did. Uh, the second one is Old Boy, but the third one, Lady Vengeance. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that partway through the movie, towards the end, it slowly fades to black and white. From that's color cool. Until the, like it slowly like loses color until like the last. Uh, many minutes of the movie are in complete black and white. Uh, yeah. But I couldn't, wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't it be cool if they made a, you know, a, what like a Marvel movie that was set in the forties, like a Captain America movie, but they made it like in the style of, you know, Casablanca, like a old Hollywood movie. <laughs> I mean, I would love it. <laughs> You're well, doing the choir here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they had Wanda. they have WandaVision yes, coming out this Marvel out series. Tomorrow, of, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, I, I I mean Soderbergh, whose birthday is today, the day we're recording. Um, oh, he, he did the Good did German, movie, right? That was black which and white. Got kind of mixed reviews. I've not seen it, but his idea of the film was: what if we made a movie like you know that came like the, the era that Casablanca was made? Mm-hmm. We used all of the technology of that era: the cameras, the lenses, the t- the tools. But you could have the subject matter, you know. That the, the that the Hayes Code would have right. never let you make back right. then, and he admitted like maybe I was the only person who was interested in doing that because <laughs> it made no money. Stars George Clooney and Kate Blanchett, yeah. but uh, Toby Maguire yeah. and uh, and what was really cool. I mean, we're rambling, but I think that it was I loved his TV show The Nick, mm-hmm. and it got canceled after two seasons. And he said that he wanted to do the third season in black and white. I don't know if that was part of the reason they canceled it. But, <laughs> yeah, as soon as I heard that, they were like, nope. <laughs> yeah. And it was on like the random channel that was like Cinemax, which all, had all I these like. I think it was Cinemax, most, yeah. It was like these dumb action shows. And then they had like this auteur television <laughs> Strike show. Strike back. <laughs> yeah. Like but that. they are supposedly rebooting it with Barry Jenkins. Oh, wow. They're doing like a new, like, like a new season of it. Is there's been talks with a different director. That. That's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, yeah, right. I, I just don't think if there was like a live action <laughs> Disney remake of like something or a Harry Potter or uh, like if they did it in black and white, I, it would be an interesting experiment to see. Well, the thing is, I just don't think they would let them do it. Like it no, just would never yeah. get that far. Yes. Unless it was but, like, you know, a director with the pull of a Christopher Nolan or Coen Brothers. Yeah. Or like like, that. I, like what if Christopher Nolan wanted to make a Bond know, movie in black and white? <laughs> Yeah, there was never a Bond movie in black and white. No, there wasn't, but (laughs) you could do the first one. (laughs) Yeah. All right. We've we've kept you all for long enough. Thank you for listening. It was a little break between this episode and our last one, hopefully. Not as long of a break for the next one. 
Um, but yeah, thank you for listening. We'll be, we or, will be back with y'all next time. Jonathan. <laughs> or you could say, thank you. Thank you. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> All right. See y'all. <laughs>